You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Hey, what's up, everybody? I hope you're doing well and staying safe out there and all that jazz. Try to keep this intro nice and short. Well, first of all, thank you to everyone who picked up a Fuzzrocious Typhon. That was a really fun collaboration, and they are officially all gone. So big thank you for everyone who supported and picked one of those up. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Another thing, before we get into it, let's not forget about a couple ways you can support the show with your gear-buying habits, and that is by going to ToneMob.com slash Reverb, or tonemob.com slash sweetwater for any of your gear purchasing needs. If you want the best customer service and you're looking to pick up a new piece of gear, you know that Sweetwater is the way to go. So tonemob.com slash sweetwater is the place for that. If you're hankering for something a little more vintage, a little more weird, or just want to pick up something used just to give it a whirl, go to Reverb, of course. So tonemob.com slash Reverb is the place to go for that. Anything you purchase through that link or those links rather, will come back and help support the show and keep this thing going. And hey, you're going to buy gear anyway, right? Almost certainly. It'd be weird if you were listening to this and you weren't going to buy gear. I don't even know what kind of person. Anyway, those are the links you can use to help keep this thing going. And additionally, if you're a really big fan and you need more of these ramblings in your ears every week, you can go to patreon.com slash tonemob, where for $5 a month, you can get extra episodes delivered right to your ears. Huge thank you to everyone who's supporting through that. I really, really appreciate it. It literally keeps the lights on around here because it is actually covering almost exactly my normal electric bill. So thank you to all the Patreon subscribers and anyone who's listened to this show and really enjoys it. All right. This episode was actually a guest that was requested by a specific patron. You know who you are because you're listening to this right now. So thanks for the suggestion. And if you want to like influence me to do certain things, that's the best way to do it. So without further ado, let's get into this episode with Jay. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Tone Mob Podcast, the show about guitar tone and the people behind it. I'm your host, Blake Wyland, and with me today, I have Jay Gillard of Gillard Guitars. Did I say that right? I hope I did. Yeah, Gillard. How's it going? All right. Okay, it could have been Gillard. I mean, I would have just completely dropped the ball. I've only read it. I've never heard it said out loud. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of used to mispronunciations by this point. <laughs> I understand. I get Wayland. 
a lot. I'm like, there's oh, yeah. no, yeah, there's no A, but you know, hey, it's fine. I get, I get Juilliard and Juilliard like the school, and it's like, well, you're just adding letters now. It's not helpful. <laughs> it's not helpful to anybody. No. So uh, yeah, we'll just get right into it, man. Because uh, I don't know really all that much about your backstory, and other than I see your guitars on the internet, I'm like, man, those are pretty, and that's basically all oh, I know. Thanks. So. Oh, how did you get it. started? I mean, and how much this, more is there? You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> how did I get started? That's a uh, high school wood shop. I started making my first one. I just kind of wasn't all that interested in the rest of the curriculum. And uh, it was a new school. So they were kind of like pumping up the tech side of things. And my shop teacher had a guitar hanging in the hallway that he had made. And I was like, I want to do that. Can I do that instead of making a coffee table or a picture frame or whatever? Um, and very fortunately, uh, Mr. Walsh, uh, allowed me to start my first guitar in grade 10 and I finished it towards the end of grade 12. And then the year after high school, I started a company. Oh, really? So you just yeah, went for it right out the gate. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't exactly good at anything else at the time. Um, I am still not really, but it just like, it clicked and I just fell in love with it and People started asking me for them, even though like I was just this young kid who didn't really know how to run a business or anything, right? But I um, had some friends that just took a chance on me, and I built a few uh, mediocre guitars. And then eventually I went back and rebuilt those um, for them later on. But um, yeah, I've been doing it for 10 years now, just over. Were you a guitar player before you started building? <laughs> surprisingly no i get asked that a lot actually it's um i didn't even learn start learning guitar until after i had finished my first one um which kind of shows in like what i ended up making the first time around it's not exactly ergonomic it's uh a little pointy it's a little uh, out there um, but i learned a lot after that from you know realizing what i did wrong on that guitar from learning on that guitar and eventually switched up how i was doing things a little bit did Mr. Walsh know anything about guitars or did he just say, have at it, kid? Um, he was definitely knowledgeable in um, like a lot of the construction side of things. Like he was a, a shop teacher first and uh, a cabinet maker, I believe. So like he, he had the woodworking skills. I don't know how much he played, but he also wasn't one to force me into any uh, decisions about the guitar. Um, so I think like he guided me through the necessities, the, you know, fret placement and bridge placement and all that, all that kind of stuff that, you know, I didn't know anything about at the time while still allowing me to draw my own shape and kind of be a little bit more out there with it. Cause ultimately that's what I, as a kid wanted to do. And I don't know if I would have had the same vigor for it if he had, sat down and said, look, if you're going to build a guitar, it has to be a telly. Right. 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 So I, th I think that that small amount of freedom he gave me is probably part of what like birthed the passion that it, it actually grew into over time is because I saw the design aspect of it. And I was like, there's limitless potential in, in what you can do within a guitar. Yeah. It certainly is. I mean, I'm going through the process right now of helping trying to design 
a, a guitar from scratch and I'm not like mm-hmm. a, a designer by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but just kind of giving my input here and there. And it is incredible how far you can go within this format. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's definitely one of those um, design things where you have to work within the limitations of the instrument and a guitar actually does have a lot of design limitations, but I've always found that the limitations kind of spark more creative ways to work around it or to incorporate those limitations. Um, and that's, that's always been an interesting uh, thing with guitars for me is that it, it feels limitless, but it's also very limited. And how do I find a unique voice within that has been the constant kind of push and pull of guitar building for me. It is kind of a weird thing to think about. Like it has to, it still has to function and trying yeah. to make something that's like aesthetically pleasing that still looks like a guitar that hasn't been mm-hmm. done before is really hard, especially with headstocks. Nearly, nearly impossible. Oh yeah. Headstocks are the hardest thing to design that look unique at all. And like, I don't claim to have done that. Like I've used very Fender style headstocks. I've done Gibson ish style headstocks. I, it, it works, right? Like there's, I, I kind of focus on straight string pull as much as I can. And then tuner placement that there's so many limitations inside the headstock alone that it's really, really difficult to get something unique that also looks good. Cause I mean, I've seen some bad headstocks in my day, and uh, <laughs> hopefully I haven't made any of them. Uh, I probably have, but, you know, you learn. I I made a joke yesterday, not the funniest joke, but, like, that's why these headless guitars are becoming a thing, because it's just easier <laughs> to not have a headstock from a design perspective. Than, <laughs> in a way. Try to make a cool uh, one. Except now you're you're introducing limitations in your body shape because of the body tuners. Um, of course so it's just it's moving your limitations to a different spot is all that's doing have you ever played around with uh because i haven't seen all of your builds obviously but have you ever played around with something like that a little more out there like a multi-scale or a headless design or anything like that yeah i i've been doing multi-scale for probably seven years now um like my first big guitar run was all multi-scale that was like the first kind of make it or break it moment in my career was just offering up. I think I did 14 of them that year um, of a design called the Empress uh, is what I named it a long time ago. Um, mm-hmm. And they're they all fan fret. Um, there was carved tops and flat tops. I did a seven string on that run, all sorts of different exotic woods. Like I just went all out at a really low price point um, just to try to build that audience a little bit. And I think it, it worked really well. Um, and then I've done headless, uh, I made a couple headless last year and the year before, uh, a couple seven strings, um, that were very kind of ergonomically focused in the design where, um, similar to like a, a Strandberg, but where a Strandberg is mostly ergonomic in the profile of the design, like the actual outline of the guitar is very ergonomically focused. Outside of that, it has a little bit of an armrest and maybe a belly cut, and that's the the limit of its 3D ergonomics. So I set out to design a guitar that was like 
ergonomic from every angle kind of thing. So it has a spherical top to it um, and a radius back alongside all of the contours, which are, are pretty heavily contoured. So it really just kind of like snuggles into your body quite nice. Um, and then the biggest thing, uh, and this is a bit of a pet peeve, when headless guitars don't fit in a wall hanger, Yes. That bugs me. <laughs> yes. So I made I made sure like, yes, it's headless, but it, you know, it flares out enough that it can stay in a bloody hanger. Um, so that's what I did those couple of years. And you know, you like you've done some more traditional stuff too. What do you think you're more known for? Um, I think I was or like I've been known for most recently for the combination of doing very traditional shapes with fan frets um so i did a bunch of like fan fret strats and uh my tyrant model is uh very kind of telecaster-esque in terms of the the aesthetic of the body and a lot of offsets and stuff like that so there was a good three years where that's pretty much what i did exclusively was these fender style guitars but with fan frets and with you know slanted pickups and uh individual height adjustable nuts and like all these like new modern tech features inside what at a distance kind of looks like a more traditional guitar. Have you had any other help along the way or has this been all you learning on your own? It's been me learning on my own. I've had a, a couple apprentices um, over the past couple of years uh, just because my workload, like I went from doing 10, 15 guitars a year to doing over 30 a year in the past couple of years, uh, which was just a lot. And it that was a reactive uh, business decision more than anything, uh, just because there was some opportunities that presented themselves to uh, collaborate with a few different uh, companies in the city where I live to do a big celebratory charity project, um, which just involved making way more than I normally make. So I brought um, a couple guys on just for the year. Uh, but I've kind of dialed back to what I'm more comfortable running just on my own. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so, but I mean, yeah, that was talking about people you work that worked under you, but did you like study under any luthiers or oh, anybody you looked uh, up to? Um, most of what I've done has been self-taught since high school and the internet, you know, I mm -hmm. did take a acoustic building course with Tony Carroll of Carroll Guitars in Mississauga, uh, Ontario, Canada. Um, so I, I took his course to build myself an acoustic, um, and I learned a lot through that of all that kind of, uh, like the differences between acoustic and electric in terms of construction, um, so that I could take those ideas and apply them to the electrics was my thought process. So I did that some of those outside of that. Oh. Sorry. Um, no, that's that's okay. It's um, hmm, that's a good question. I I learned a lot about the the more the more fine woodwork side of things. Um, like up to that point, I don't think I've ever actually used the chisel for guitar building. Whereas on a acoustic, it was like you're carving braces and it's very delicate, and you're working with thinner stocks of wood, and there's a lot more. Um, typically with acoustics, there's a lot more 
decorative laminating and stuff. And uh, that's where I started to learn about contouring binding around a um, 3D curve, like a curve that's not just going in one direction, but it's also moving laterally. Um, same thing with like the armrests and stuff and, and how to veneer those. And there, there was a lot that I took away from acoustics uh, just from a, they just have like a different vibe to them, you know, and it's, it's been cool to incorporate some of those elements into like when I did some bases after that, I made wooden bridges for these bases, but using metal saddles that could still be intonated. Um, and the bridge construction of that was very, very similar to constructing an acoustic bridge. Um, so that's like a very specific example of something I kind of took away from acoustic building. That's really, that's really interesting. Did, was there a reason you wanted to use the wood bridge or is it just like, I learned how to do this now. Let's try it. A limitation uh, kind of forced me into it. Uh, it was the first run I did of Fanfret five string uh, bases. So, and this, this was before it was like readily common to be able to buy like individual base bridges from Hipshot or anything. Um, mm -hmm. and there weren't any companies offering pre-made fan fret bridges at the time. Like it's just, it was so new in the electric guitar world that there wasn't pre-made hardware to accommodate it. So for a while I was milling and anodizing my own aluminum uh, bridges for electric guitars. And then these wooden bridges were how I kind of conquered the angle for the bridge on the bases. And then I just bought the like, uh, ABM style saddles to fit in these wooden bridges. Um, and that allowed me to fan it as well as doing my custom string spacing and everything just kind of fit with that design of the base. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, the the whole multi-scale fan fret thing is is still pretty new to me. I had Jason Rogers from JMR Guitars. I don't know if you're familiar mm -hmm. with him or not, but uh, he's a local builder to me. He came on, oh, geez, when was that? Well, pre-COVID, so January oh, wow. or yeah. December, you know. Like three back, years back ago, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, three and a half, four years ago. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, it, like, really broke it down and explained, you know, uh, why and how, at least in his mind, you know, this was a mm -hmm. thing. And one thing I, I thought was cool about his guitars is that they never, they didn't really take any getting used to for me as somebody who's mm -hmm. used to traditional straight frets. Whereas some that I've played that have a more extreme mm -hmm. uh, angle, it, it was a little bit more, it wasn't terrible, but it was a little bit more of like a, oh, I got to look at this and see what I'm doing. What yeah, What exactly. range do you try to stay in? Um, I'm definitely leaning more towards the um, milder side of things. Um, I want to be able to hand a fan fret guitar to someone without telling them about it in, in the way that you would at any music store. Just be like, oh, yo, you got to try this and just hand it mm -hmm. to them. And they just will pick it up and start playing. And then I love the moment like three minutes into them playing where they like actually just look down. And they're like, whoa, something, something's different about this. And then they actually see it and they're like, this is fan fret. And I didn't even realize. And part of that is because, you know, they didn't have a preconceived idea of what it was going to feel like because they had stared at it before picking it up. 
Um, so when people are coming over to try guitars, I always just try to get them to play it before they even realize it's fan frets. Um, just so that it's not a mental barrier for them to get over in, in order to enjoy how the guitar actually plays and feels. And then once they get past that, they're able to actually appreciate some of the benefits that it, it can provide. Um, things like string tension and wrist placement, basically, um, are the two biggest ones for me. But I went through many... Um, my, my, the first one I built was way too extreme. Uh, and it was hard to play and it was annoying. So I rebuilt that one and it was uh, much more comfortable, but I knew it still wasn't quite right. So I made five or six necks that all had small variations to the scale lengths and to the neutral fret, which is basically where the fan transitions from angling towards the nut to angling towards the bridge. So you can actually move that point around. Um, so I've done guitars where the bridge is actually perfectly straight and the only thing angled is the nut. And I've done some where both are angled and all kinds of stuff. Um, and eventually I settled on what I use to this day. And what is that exactly? It is a 25 inch on the high E to a 26.3 on the low E for six string guitars. Um, although the math can be extended uh, to seven and eights, but with seven and eights, you can also get away with more fan and you, don't have the negative uh, comfort things from it. And then my neutral fret is five and a half, I think. Okay. It's been a while since I designed it. I just have a file on my computer now that uh, it spits it out for me. Right. But yeah, it's, a, it's around Do that. But the scale lengths are definitely 25 to 26.3. Gotcha. Gotcha. So this is kind of a weird sort of off-topic off question. But you're one of the first people that I've talked to in quite a while that got into this business right out of high school. Mm -hmm. What was your family's reaction to like, I, this is what I want to do? Because, <laughs> you know, that's not the traditional thing. Like, I'm going to start building guitars. It's like, but you're not going to go to college and stuff. So, like, yeah, what, I feel like they like? still don't know what to make of it, um, to be completely honest. No, they're, they're super proud and supportive and they've always been supportive, uh, even in those early years. Cause like I lived at home until I was 24 or five. Um, mm -hmm. and I took over the garage and it kind of spilled out into the living room at times in my bedroom and there was like sawdust everywhere. And it, it was a lot to deal with, um, running a, you know, guitar company out of my parents' house. Um, but they also knew that I was saving money and I was working towards buying a house and a shop so that I could do this full time potentially. Cause at the time I wasn't, I had various part-time jobs throughout the years uh, to kind of support this and to, to save up. Um, but I do remember they did say to me at the very early phase of this, they're like, this is great. Pursue it, but also get a real job. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. <laughs> which like at the time made total sense. And I, I worked in a factory for six years uh, just to save money for a house. Um, and then a couple of years after moving, I quit that job and I quit the other job that I also had. And I started doing guitars full time, which was scary. Yeah, I, I totally get it. But that's the exact kind of advice I try to give to people that are wanting to start doing their own thing, mm -hmm. especially in this weird business. Cause it is a weird business. Um, 
is to do exactly what you just said. Like get a job, you know, yeah. that you can tolerate doing that pays your bills and lets you save money. Work on your business on the side until mm-hmm. it's at a point which makes like you can go, okay, this is making the same amount or almost the same amount. It's like, it's making what I need to live. I can now leave, you know, it makes it a lot less yeah. scary because I've seen people like jump in and hold both feet to the fire and like have to make it work, which also can be beneficial because you get that motivation, but it's also, I could never mentally do that. I'd be way too stressed. It's, it's, I had it's to- a lot. It's, yeah. it's a lot to handle. And like, I've definitely had several years that were that even though you know the years before that was like some years of guitar building is the most money i've made in my life and then there's two years of like i don't know if i can eat things other than rice Mm -hmm. and it's when when you're self-employed especially self-employed within the music industry which is another just hard thing to break into and hard thing to work within. Um, and you're in manufacturing. It's, it's hard to know when that next sale is going to be or where that next paycheck is going to come. Or if you're going to get enough setups in the month to, to pay for groceries. And like, that's a constant thing, even though like I have found some success in, in this industry and with guitar building. And I have, built a brand that I'm very proud of and have been able to do some really cool things because of it. But, um, I mean, COVID aside, that's a whole other discussion, right? I don't always have the confidence that I will be able to continue to live off what I'm making with guitars. Cause sometimes it's just a bad year. It's a bad few months and you have to roll with that. And at the same time, if you start taking jobs that you're not, invested in because you need the paycheck then then the work quality suffers and then you're not proud of what you're doing anymore so you can't you can't let yourself take every single job which i i've been guilty of in the past i've been there and looking back on it like those are the things i regret i regret doing the projects that i wasn't actually passionate about and that wasn't necessarily in line with artistically what I wanted to be doing. So that's, it's a constant, you have to check yourself constantly to make sure you're not falling into that trap of being in this industry to survive. Um, And you have to be okay with like having slow months or slow years and then building up from that and, and bouncing back kind of thing. So it's, it's, any sort of small business, I'm sure, is is hard to to navigate, but especially in the music industry, being as fragile as it is. Well, one thing that I've noted about the music industry, and it's a little less so with the gear industry, but definitely with like the larger music industry, is it's mm-hmm. a very like it sounds cool, right? To, to even to people who don't know anything about it, it's like, oh yeah, I, I build guitars or I work on guitar yeah. stuff or. You know, I mean, you can imagine the looks I get like, oh, yeah, I do this podcast. They're like, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you, you do what? <laughs> you know, like, uh, they let you but do like that. Some, <laughs> yeah. Like, like, yeah, people do that. I'm like, yeah, I guess some people. But it is a very attractive thing to a lot of people. It's like, oh, cool. You know, you get to work on all this cool stuff, which is true. But I think because it's such yeah. an attractive thing, 
it has a tremendous volume of interest and that makes it that much more difficult to stand out and do whatever it is that you're doing in the music industry because there's, you know, like, like a singer songwriter, for example, mm-hmm. you gotta be really good because <laughs> there's literally mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of singer songwriters trying to do the same type of thing. So you gotta be really good or have something unique and, uh, it's and keep and work really hard. That's the other part yeah, that it's that you got to do. It's the actually the most important part, probably. Yeah, it's definitely a Venn diagram of sorts of people who actually make it. Is you know, it's hard work, but it's also right place, right time. It it's an element of luck or um, just being fortunate with with what you have or the position that you started in, um, and and you know the privileges you had going into it, like there's a whole level of things that just like have to stack in the right spots at the right time in order to build a career in the music industry. And and yeah, like musicians are, are one side of it, but even with like, you look at pedal builders, right? Like how many people are making overdrives? Everyone, literally everyone has made an overdrive. How do you break through that noise to be the JHS or, you know, like all these huge companies that are still just making overdrives, let's be honest, but the, the branding and the marketing is there and the work was put in behind the scenes so that they are ready for the orders. And if you're not thinking about your, your music career, whether you're a musician or a gear builder or a, a vlogger, like a, or a musician photographer, like a band photographer, whatever, if you're not thinking of it as a business, it's going to be hard to um, break through in the music industry because it's already so well established. And like you said, there it's the whole music industry in general is very idealized. I think in, in terms of people outside looking in, they're like, that's a cool job. I can't believe you just like get to go to concerts. It's part of your job. And it's like, yes, that's sweet. And I do. And I, I've been able to meet, a bunch of cool people and a bunch of my heroes, but it's not important as much to, to what actually is required to build a business like this. Um, and it's, I always tell people who, who ask me, it's like, Oh, how do I start building guitars as a career? I'm like, don't just don't <laughs> build guitars. <laughs> Build for guitars because you want to build guitars. Not even for fun. Like you can sell them, and but my mistake was going into it being like, "This is going to be my career and my vocation and my identity and everything about my life." Was like, "Yes, I'm a guitar builder. That's who I am. That's what I do. I'm not hearing anything else from anyone." Um, and it it can take away from the experience compared to the times where I'm just like. I just really have a desire to build this cool idea I have and share it with my friends and hang out and, you know, make dumb videos in the shop. Like I I used to do with some buddies. Um, That's when I've done my most inspiring work. I think has been when it's very just for the love of it, even within the context of, yes, I need to make money and yes, I need to, you know, afford the mortgage and, and all that kind of stuff. It's it's when it was for the love of guitars and the love of design that I've done my best work. And it's 
that's what I try to tell people who are immediately thinking of like, they got dollar signs in their eyes and like, Oh, you, you sell guitars for how much money? Like, that's incredible. You must be so rich. And it's like, well, no, because you know, I maybe sell five to 10 of them a year. If I have a good year, I sell 20 or 30 and that's great. Um, but you don't have that guaranteed. Some people do. I don't have that guaranteed yet. Um, so I just tell them like, just build, get a real job for now, get a job in the music industry if you can, cause it will, you know, piggyback off each other. And those connections you make are valuable, uh, when you start selling gear as well. Um, anyways, yeah, that's my spiel about, uh, working in the music industry. <laughs> I mean, it's important it's to talk about this stuff, you know, like everyone who's listening to this right now has some level of interest in music, whether they exactly, want to yeah. get into this or not or what it's, it's nice to be honest about it because it does it. Well, I shouldn't say always, it can look very glamorous and cool. Like you're saying like, Oh, you got to do mm-hmm. this and meet so-and-so and go to this and go backstage and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's like, yes. And those are like, very much highlights. Yeah, those uh, are the of, things you take photos of for Instagram, but you know, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make the cut because it's <laughs> you know, depressing as heck to watch from the outside, you know, and if right. people if that's what you showed people all day, they'd be like, "Hey man, you're all right? Like, you right. sure you want to <laughs> do this still? You this sounds seems crazy to me that you're still, you know, pushing through all this you know, sawdust, I guess, is a way to put it. Yeah, 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 for sure. But then, you know, on the flip side of the coin, you know, you have people that get a little bit turned off by all this stuff. Like, you mentioned JHS earlier, and I've, you know, I talked to a lot of pedal builders, and that's what I do is help out a lot of companies like that. Mm-hmm. And I've had conversations with people who were, I mean, for lack of a better term, jealous of josh and his company and i was like well if you if you want to if you want to get to where josh is then you have to do the things that josh does so guess what it's time for you to make a youtube video every week yeah it's a very high quality (laughs) it's time for you to produce the level of content that his company produces it's time for you to do the, the all of the things that he's done that guy's worked insanely hard to get his company yeah. and is still working hard to get his co- to make his company float cuz now that it's a bigger more successful operation he's got a bunch of people that depend on him to make yeah. it work and and <laughs> so on you know tying into that not only do you have to do all the things that he's done you're going to be doing it by yourself until mm-hmm. you are able to hire people to help you. Cause like, yes, he has a team now that's helping him. It's not just him anymore. And that helps him pump out the high quality content more regularly with less stress to him. I'm sure he's still very stressed, but when you're starting out, you are your accountant, you're your bookkeeper, you're doing all your social media, you're doing all your advertising campaigns, you're producing the actual um, product, you're designing your logos and your imagery, and then you're trying to be present online and in person. You're going to events, you're doing trade shows, like you're doing everything, and you can get worn so thin so quick. But at the same time, that's where everyone else has started and everyone else has been through. 
and you have to put in that work and it's not for everyone. It, it takes a very specific type of person to be able to trudge through that, you know, the first five to 10 years of business in order to get to the point where you can take a breath and sit back and be like, okay, I've, I've built the foundation that I need in order for me to relax a little bit and let the cogs turn and let, you know, the, the machine of business actually do its job. Right. Um, (laughs) So for me, and this has been one of the hardest things for me is that I went into guitar building. I was just a kid that wanted to make guitars. That's all I ever wanted was just to be in the shop and physically work with the wood. I never wanted to run a business. I didn't know how to run a business. I didn't take any business courses. Everything has been self-taught in that regard as well. I didn't want to be doing my own product photography, uh, which I still do. Like I, I'm still a solo operation, so I'm still technically doing all those things. I just, you know, I use a lot of apps and a lot of like pre, uh, not recorded, like pre-scheduled Instagram posts. Everything is, I do it once a year and I schedule for 365 days and then it does it by its, yeah, it's, that's like my January is planning the entire year's worth of pre-scheduled Instagram posts. I do regular ones as well as, you know, I'm led to do and like, I'm working on something cool. I'll take a quick picture of it, post it up or I'll do an Instagram story or whatever. But the majority of what you see of the product photography on my Instagram page is all pre-scheduled. All the captions are there. All the hashtags are there because I found I was spending all my time doing that and not any of my time building. And all I ever wanted to do was build. So I'm like, okay, how do I, without spending a ton of money paying someone to do this, how do I take that off my plate or make it more manageable? Um, so that's what I did. And like I dialed back all the YouTube stuff and I, I dialed back, like we host house shows and stuff in, in my house. Like we bring bands in and I used to be way more involved with those. And I dialed that back and I'm just like picking out all the things that caused me unneeded stress that didn't actually feed into why I started, which was, to build guitars. Um, and I'm still working on it. I'm still weeding out, um, all the fluff, um, in order to, to kind of get back to, to, to a place where I'm, I'm really comfortable and I'm moving forward at a a really controlled rate that is manageable for a, a one person business. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm working on. And, And again, advice that I give to people is like, if you want to be a gear manufacturer, you're also going to be a hundred different things. And most of your time is going to be spent doing all those other things that enable you to actually be in the shop two days a week kind of thing. And it's, it is that ratio of, of behind the scenes work versus actually being in the shop building, at least for me. Yeah. Well, it's really tough with a, consumer facing brand which is what most guitar stuff is you know the advice that like i like to give people when they're like because this is a lot of what i do is like you said about paying somebody to do your social that's why i do the opposite of what you do i'm on socials all day long 
mm-hmm. for you know a bunch of different builders and mm-hmm. um and so it's a little bit different of a, of a story there but like with consumer facing brands in general the advice that i give and that i've heard and i believe in is you got to treat yourself like a a media company that happens to sell a product yeah and 100%. that's that is so hard and especially when like you've spent all your time and skill level and development like learning how to do the product to the best of your ability and you're like wait now i have to learn this whole other thing and yeah it's like and it unfortunately yes <laughs> The you the know. hardest part is getting your product into people's hands. Like in theory, you should have a product that once someone picks it up, they want it, right? Mm-hmm. And they see the quality and they're like, I need to have this. Even If I can't afford it now, I'm going to start saving up. Or this is going to be my graduation present or my wedding gift to my brother that I love a lot or retirement or whatever it is um, with like these high ticket items like big expensive guitars. If that's their perspective when they pick it up, the hard part is figuring out an opportunity for them to pick it up, right? Because if you're not already well-known and you can have an amazing online presence, but I live in Hamilton, Ontario. Like, it's a city, but it's kind of in the middle of nowhere in terms of a worldview, and I don't have guitars hanging all over the world. So if someone in France wants to try my guitar, they can't. They can't physically touch it until they buy one. And that's really difficult. So then it's a question of, well, how do I build my credibility so that they don't need to physically touch one in order to believe that the quality is as I say it is? And it's like, okay, now you're looking at reviews and um, bands that use and travel with your guitars to give you credibility. And like, again, it's just so hard to break through that layer to get to the point where someone's scrolling through Instagram and they see a pretty guitar and they click on the page and they see it's for sale and they're like, oh, I should buy that because it's a lot of money and it's, it's hard to trust a builder without having hands-on experience and it's it's still something i again i'm trying to to figure out better ways of doing that um even now i mean it's a huge challenge but if you see like the most successful guitar brands for the most part are ones that have been around in one form or another for a little bit because it's exactly what you said like somebody in france can order a american standard telecaster and they pretty much know what's going to show up more or you less, know. yeah, because there's thousands of them, and like they can play something similar and try it. They can try their friends and then order one, and it, it'll be pretty well close. I mean, some companies have better quality control than others, but it'll be pretty well what you expect. Um, but yeah, I agree. Have you found that, like, I've always imagined that guitars art because they're such a personal thing right like Mm -hmm. i've talked about before that like i love les pauls and i thought i wanted a a white les paul custom for years i wanted one just aesthetically and like based on some of my musical heroes playing them Mm -hmm. but then i i went through and played i don't even know how many i played over the years in stores thinking i'm all right i'm gonna buy this one and i played it i'm like nope put that back on the wall and i finally found one that i really fell in love with but 
that's where I'm going with that is like it's such a personal thing and sometimes you can't put your finger on one why or on why one is better than another. I don't know that I you know and when you're spending a lot of money on a custom build it's it's like I hope this is right. You have to totally rely on that reputation. And have you found any really key things to building that reputation other than just churning out quality products? Um, yeah. Uh, fixing your mistakes. Because you're going to make them. And I've made a bunch. And like I've, I've had a couple doozies um, early on in my career where like I basically had to recall that entire first run I made because uh, there was a problem with the neck joints. And I discovered it. There was a guy who lived nearby who just gave me a call and he was like, hey man, I'm having this problem with my guitar. I don't know if it's anything, but I, I think there's something wrong with the neck joint. I'm like, oh, cool, I'm going to drive over and take a look and I'll bring you a different guitar uh, that I can leave with you while I figure out what's happened with yours. And sure enough, there was this pretty substantial problem that was causing uh, the neck joints to to fail on some of the guitars. And I narrowed it down to what it was, and I determined, like, okay, it's actually only three or four of the guitars that are probably affected. Um, and I, there, like, there's a high chance that it wouldn't ever be an issue. And this was a very localized thing. And that I was able to fix. I was able to fix the neck joint issue. It's back to normal. He ended up ordering another guitar for me later on. But I had a choice in that moment where I could just sit back and not say anything and deal with the issues if and when they came up. And that felt safe and kind of like the smarter move, quote unquote, but it felt sleazy and gross. So instead what I did was I sent an email out to not only the guitars that I thought were susceptible to this, but everyone on the run. Just outlining like, hey, one of the guitars experienced this issue. Here's what to look out for. If you see any of these symptoms of it, give me a call. I'll set you up with a local tech that I'll vet out. I'll give them instructions how to fix it. It's all on me. If it happens, it's covered. And like you'll be good. And failing that, I will give you your money back. And sure enough, it happened to two other guitars out of the 14. And they gave me a call. I'm like, cool, I'll find a builder near you. Emailed the builder, had a chat with them. They ended up being able to do the repair nice and easy. Bing, bang, boom, done. And those were the customers that I got really, really shining reviews from, even though their guitars were imperfect. And I think that's been a big thing in my career and, and some of the other builders that I respect so much and have bounced ideas off of and are friends with is owning your mistakes and and fixing them in a way that has honor to it and integrity. And I think that's so lacking in, uh, in, in our day and age and, and, in in capitalism in general is that like people try so hard to have this unblemished track record 
that looks perfect and everything's a five-star review and no one's ever unhappy with my product. It's like, well, that's a lie. There are going to be, no matter how good you are, there are going to be people that are upset at you or what you gave them doesn't fit what they were picturing in their head. And it's, it's frustrating and it's tough, but it's reality. And I think how you deal with that is going to be the biggest um, indicator to to people who haven't owned your instruments yet or your product yet, who are thinking about buying your product. Yes, they want to know if it's going to be a good product. And they're going to look at people's reviews of quality and they might want to get their hands on one and try it and hear it or see a band that they respect use it. But at the end of the day, they want to know what's this company going to do if something does go wrong? And can I trust the person behind the company more than I even trust the product? And that's, it, it just takes a bit of, it's hard. It, it's hard to, to take that hit to your, to your ego and to your pride to say like, I didn't make a perfect product and now I have to fix that, you know? Um, and I look back at the first two orders I ever took as a kid. And I was like, those weren't good guitars. And I started selling way before I ever should have. And I think that's what kind of taught me, like, you got to go back and fix things and make everything right. I think that uh, we'll see as things progress, you know, if you look at all these surveys and stuff, like people want to talk trash about millennials. Well, I'm a millennial. I think you're probably about my age. Uh, so like, yeah, probably in around there. Yeah. So I think if you look at all these surveys, like we're kind of like the, uh, uh, we're in the prime working ages of our life basically right now. And at least most of us are. Mm -hmm. And if you look at like every customer, blah, blah, blah survey. One of the things that always stands out is like millennials and younger, like want the companies they do business with to have a lot of integrity. And I think that is because for so long we, we grew up seeing companies that the de facto was to not, yeah, to not have any integrity at all. (laughs) Like you almost expected to get taken advantage of. So that way when somebody did provide decent customer service. It was like, oh, look at them. Wow. Like, yeah. Wow, yeah. look at you, Zappos. You're amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, so it's imperative to not only do that because it's the right thing to do, but it's also a good business decision to have exceptional customer service because we're kind yeah. of expecting it these days. At least yeah, I definitely. Am. And it's, it's something to look out for. It, but again, like the hardest part of it is when it's your name attached to it or you're running the company by yourself, you're taking the hit personally and financially and mentally and to your ego and to your pride. It's, it sucks to, to admit that you messed up. Um, but you got to do it. Cause yeah, it is a smart business move. And like this day and age, it, it's, it's still countercultural to, run a business with integrity and to treat your customers like people like that's still a little weird for most companies. Um, but we've all been on, you know, really terrible 
like service calls and stuff where it's like, <laughs> I just want my refund or I just want to cancel my account. Why are you making this so hard? Just let me do it. Um, yeah, it's, it's the hardest part I'd say. Well, we're getting down to the last little bit of the main podcast here. Has this been lighthearted enough? <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. It's been great. <laughs> I feel like I'm and just talking very, about all the negative things. It's great. I uh, love it. I love guitar making. No, we don't, we, no, we're just being real. Just being real, man. Yeah, it's know. all good. I know. Uh, so, but what I would like to do before we get into the last few questions here is let you put yep. up a billboard, you know, you can say whatever, anything you've been wanting to get off your chest, anything you want to plug, this is your time in the spotlight. Oh, cool. Um, I think last year I was involved in a project called the 99 James North project. James North is a street in Hamilton where I live. And there was a company that, uh, had an opportunity to either tear down a building or restore it. And they chose to restore it. And part of that was uh, removing a bunch of beams to build a fire access. Um, this company was a record label called Sonic Onion. And then a tattoo shop went into that main floor called Cotter's 13 Tattoo. And then there's also a music store called Birchway Sound, uh, all in Hamilton, all very Hamilton-centric. And we teamed up with the four of us to build 25 guitars out of this reclaimed wood from this building that they saved on this historic street in Hamilton. Um, and then we decided that uh, a percentage of each uh, sale would go towards a local charity called an instrument for every child, uh, which basically just provides instruments and access to teachers, um, to kids from all walks of life, some who maybe wouldn't have had access to a piano or a guitar or a trumpet or whatever it may be, or someone who shows them how to play it. So that's what this charity does. Uh, so last year we raised $15,000 for this charity. We made these 25 guitars. There's still 10 or so of them left for sale, I believe. Um, and the proceeds again goes to support that. So if you want to check that out, uh, you can go to my website, www.jillardguitars.com. Jillard is with a J. Um, and then there'll be a, a page there called 99 James. Um, it has all the history of the project on it, as well as a place to look at what's currently available. Um, so I'd say check that out and it's, you know, and if you can't buy a guitar, that's fine. Donate to the charity on your own time. And I think that'd be great. And I'll put the link to that webpage in the show notes. So make it nice and easy for everybody to get oh, to. So. Sweet. So, Click cool. the link below. Yeah. 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 Uh yeah. It'll be in the show notes wherever whatever podcast player you're using to listen to this, it should be in there. And if not, go to tonemob.com where this episode is and you will see it. So make that nice and simple. Cool, man. That's really awesome. I did not know the details behind all that. I saw some of those guitars, but I did not know that's what was going on. That's really cool. Yeah, it was a fun project. Um, that, that was the opportunity I talked about earlier in the year where it's like, I can't pass this up. This is an amazing thing that we can do, but it requires me to build 25 guitars as well as the six or seven customs I had on the go. So I was like, I need help. <laughs> right. Help me. Please help yeah. me. Save me. Yeah. All right, we're going to get into the uh, the classic questions before we wrap this thing up. All right. So we didn't talk very much about your guitar playing or 
anything like that, but we'll get into a little piece of it here. <laughs> if you have one, what is your favorite boss pedal? I don't. Um, but they're the, the, they have a cool delay pedal. Uh, yep. I don't have it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, this is a new one. This is a, this is a first yeah. for this podcast. No, I, like I, DD3? I've never, yeah, something like that. I'm also just not very well versed with boss pedals. I've never owned one. Oh man. Well, we got to fix I that went, up. I went boutique right away. I did too, actually. That was, yeah. that's kind of funny that you mentioned it. Yeah. That, I think the first, first, I'm trying to remember. I, I did own a tube screamer. I bought a tube screamer because somebody told me you have to have a tube screamer. And I found out I don't really like tube screamers. But yeah. then I think the next pedal I bought after that was like a Maleco. So yeah, I went boutique right away myself. Mm-hmm. What did, well, since you don't have an answer for that, what was your, what was your first boutique pedal purchase? Um, my first ever pedal was actually one that my friend made because um, he got into pedal making a little bit and he was actually my pickup winder for for quite a few years. I just like showed up at his house one day. I had bought a pickup winder. I'm like, hey, if you figure out how to do this well, I will pay you to make me pickups. And then he got really good at it. So I used him for quite a while. Um, and yeah, so he made me a little little transparent overdrive. Very cool. Does it have a name or is it just a in a box? It says, yeah, it's just in you know, a copper colored box. Yeah. I still have it. Very cool. Very cool. All right. This is the controversial part. This is the part that people get in trouble for. Yeah. This and, is the part uh, where I piss everyone off because. Yeah. Possibly. <laughs> possibly. Oh, definitely. We'll, we'll see. What is your favorite kind of pizza? Oh. Um, oh. I didn't expect this question. I thought we were talking about gear. Favorite kind of pizza. I do chicken, green pepper, and bacon usually. Interesting. Um, I don't I don't have pizza very often anymore. I, I'm avoiding fast food and stuff in general right now. But yeah, if I'm craving it, that's probably what I would get. All right. Thin crust, thick crust. What's your what's your thing there? Uh, definitely not thin crust. Um, definitely not deep dish. So just like just a regular old kind of slightly greasy 3 a.m. drunk pizza joint, you know? <laughs> All right. That works for me. I can get down with that. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. This was a, a good chat. We got into so actual guitar me. topics this time, which is nice because the last couple episodes I've recorded have been completely off the rails which is uh, also fun. But <laughs> yeah, I mean I hope uh I hope people got something out of this that was maybe a little bit different and uh somewhat insightful to to peel back the curtain a little bit on on what it's actually like. Um yeah, and I, I don't want to sound uh disingenuine or that I'm not thankful for where I am cuz I I'm very fortunate to to be able to do this full time and that I have made a career out of it. And I I I don't want to downplay that at all, um, but it, it is hard and it's rewarding, though. Like it's as hard as it is, it, it's worth it. Um, so yeah, thanks so much for having me on, and uh, I had a blast. And uh, yeah, best of luck. Sound, sounds good, man. All Where right. can people find you other than the website you've already plugged? Uh, Instagram, Facebook at Jillard Guitars. Um, or my personal page, Jillard starts with J, which isn't guitar related at all, but it's fun. 
Right on, man. That's on Instagram? Yeah. Okay, cool. All right, folks. For Jay, this is Blake. And as always, folks, good luck and good tones. All right. All right. Thank you for sticking with me for the whole episode. And thank you for sticking with me for all these years. We're creeping up on episode 200. 200 episodes. That is a lot of hours of me rambling into a microphone. And people are still downloading it. So thank you very much. If you could share this with a friend, family, coworker, I know every podcast you listen to asks for that, but if this is one of your favorites, please do share it. It is the best thing you can do to help this show grow. I really do mean that. I'm trying to think of something special to do for episode 200, but maybe I'll just uh, get a really wicked guess. I don't know. I'll have to think about it. I didn't really think about it much until just now, because we're almost there. Just a few more weeks. But... Yeah, huge thank you to Jay, huge thank you to you for listening to this show, and I know you've got other things to do, so I'm going to get out of your ears. All right, bye. One last thing before we totally sign off here, I just want to remind you that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company. And I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings, go to ToneMob.com Stringjoy and check them out today. I seriously, seriously, seriously love what the team down there is doing. I help them out with all kinds of things. And by you supporting them, you are also supporting me as well. And hey, you need some strings, so why not get some custom strings just for your guitar and playing style. Again, the link for that is tonemob.com stringjoy, and that will take you right to their website, and you can do all your shopping through there, and that will help everyone involved out. So thank you very much. Talk to you next time. We are brought to you by the wonderful folks at Gun Street Wiring Shop. Yes, Gun Street Wiring Shop. I've talked about them before. I used to say based out of Bend, Oregon, but guess what? Sean moved to my neck of the woods. Sean's in Portland. Sean is awesome and has helped me with a bunch of stuff lately. And if you have wiring needs for your guitar, he can help you too. If you want to get weird with it, he can get weird. If you just need to spruce things up a little bit, there's your guy. He takes all the guesswork out of doing your guitar wiring, and he makes it simple, and his customer service is top-notch, and I can't say enough good things about Gunstreet as a company. I really respect Sean and what he's all about, and the product is top-notch. I've got... Three different guitars that now have Gun Street harnesses in them, and I could not be happier. So go to GunStreetWiringShop.com and check them out.